Coming up on this week's show, Atari are making 2600 games again. The new series of Games Master has arrived and we give our review. And we get the secret history of Mac Gaming with author Richard Moss. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our mates at Bitmap Books. Now, if you enjoyed this week's interview on the secret history of Mac gaming, order the book and find out how the Mac changed gaming and spawned some of the biggest franchises in the industry. A 480 pages long, it interviews over 80 legends of Mac gaming. Order your copy right now at bitmapbooks.co.uk. And by our friends at PCBWay. Now, if you're working on a project at the moment, check them out. They offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards. And they offer lots of other services too, including 3D printing and injection molding. Plus, they're massive supporters of the retro community. So you can get an instant quote for your project right now on their website at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 303, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to this week's show. The nights are getting darker here in the UK now. It is our final show of November. You boys feeling festive yet? I'm getting there. I've been to my first festive market and I've about done my, my Christmas shopping as well. I've just just got Ravi to buy for now. I've, I've, like we're buying presents. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've been like looking around and I've been seeing trees and I've been thinking, shall I get one? Shall I get one? And like, is is there an official time that you do? It? I know you guys are ridiculously early, but like, is there an official time that you get a tree? Like, usually I think, oh, December. Maybe I, <laughs> I think there is. I can't. I think there is like a. I know you have to take it down before New Year, is it, or so many days after New Year. January sixth, normally I think. Isn't yeah, it? January sixth. There we go. But I'm not too sure about putting it up. But I know last year, loads of people put it up in November because of COVID and lockdown in the UK and stuff like that. But you know, in terms of video games and our history, Christmas is always a magical time. I mean, you know, those those memories are sitting there by the Christmas tree with your new console or your new computer hooked up to the big telly. You always get to do that around Christmas as well when you were a kid, didn't you? And uh, playing your latest games. That was always so much fun. And now we're kind of into this time of year. I mean, we're getting ready for a benchmark on the Retro Hour annual calendar, and that is the Christmas Super Quiz, which is coming up in a couple of weeks' time. This is where we completely break the normal format of the show. We get on a few guests, and uh, you boys, you actually need to defend your title this year, Joe, of being the reigning quiz champion, because you won it last year, didn't you? It's too much pressure. I, You know what? Not to, you know, blow my own trumpet, but I actually won the year before as well. So I'm actually two years... I was on your team then. You were on my team, that's why. So I am two-year reigning champion. Yeah, Um, I think we'll balance each other out because you were the biggest loser. (laughs) (laughs) The Christmas quiz this time. I am. I'm partnered up with uh, my boy Ravi this year. Um, But I'm really looking forward to it. Um, And It's the taking part that counts. (laughs) Um, And RMC, Neil from RMC, I think I got him by like one or two points last year. It was tight. So I'm, I'm not feeling that confident this year. So, <laughs> Well, Neil's going to come back um, to try and challenge you. He's going to be joined by uh, Mark from Mark Fixes Stuff. They're going to be a team. We're doing teams again this year. And we're going to have Paul Drury from uh, Retro Gamer Magazine. Oliver Wilmot, who um, used to be on the quiz with us a couple of years ago. He's coming back as well. So that's going to be such a giggle. Um, hopefully, we're going to be doing a video version of that for our patrons as well. Uh, but obviously, everyone's going to get that Christmas special um, a couple of weeks before Christmas. So um, that's coming up very soon as well. Always a highlight of the year for 
me that I really enjoy doing that. And another memory I've got of this time of year, for some reason, watching Games Master, to me, it always felt like, you know, something that reminds me of the autumn when I was a kid, you know, like November evenings, around friends' houses, watching that on, on Channel 4 back in the day. And I got to relive that experience this week because the new series of Games Master has finally arrived. And we're going to give our little uh, review on that in just a moment and lots of other stories to talk about. But um, I'll just say thumbs up from me. We'll talk more about that in a second. And we're going to be joined by a special guest. Now, this week, we're going to be talking about um, Mac gaming. And I can already hear people, Ravi, saying, well, the Mac's not a gaming platform. Oh, oh, yes, it is. There were, there were some good titles on there. And, you know, we've had so many developers that have talked about like the Apple II that was, you know, one of their first kind of gaming experiences. And uh, mm. that, that was a really interesting platform, but also the Macintosh. And there's some, there was some resistance from Apple which was really interesting. And, you know, they never really wanted it to be kind of a gaming platform. You have to look at stuff like the Pippin <laughs> and, and you realise that. But um, today we're, we're talking to Richard Moss and he's actually created a book all about the history of gaming on Apple. Yeah, well, specifically the Mac. Because, I mean, you're right, really the Mac, it's generally regarded as kind of, you know, the, the creative machine, isn't it? You know, it's not really, most people don't think of video games when it comes to the Mac. But there is, I mean, a lot of games that really, I mean, you know, started life on that platform. For example, you know, Halo, Myst as well, which obviously was uh, both games that I think define their genres. Both started on the, on the Mac back in the day as well. And some of the games on there, I mean, I remember... He was an Amiga fan as well, Ravi. Did you ever emulate a Mac on your Amiga? Every, and play every Mac time, of because because the version of SimCity 2000 was utterly yep. pants on the Amiga. So, and that was a killer title. Like the Sims titles, uh, you know, simulation stuff on the Mac were really good. But also, you're forgetting about um, like Seventh Guest and the whole mm. FMV kind of period that came after Mist as well. They had a lot of FMV adventures and it was really at the forefront of that kind of CD-ROM thing. I remember some of the first CD-ROM games that I saw coming out were Mac releases. And, um, yeah, I remember playing Prince of Persia on the Mac emulator because it, you know, was way better than the, the Amiga and the DOS version. You know, the graphics were incredible. So if you ever thought the Mac wasn't, you know, it's not a gaming platform, I think we're going to change your mind this week with the author of this incredible new book, The Secret History of Mac Gaming. Richard Moss is going to be our special guest in around 25 minutes from now. But let's talk about it then. The new series of Games Master, it is finally here. And I don't know about you guys, because when we learned it was going to drop this weekend, particularly, I mean, I mean, I imagine Ravi and I probably more than you jokes. I know you weren't much of a viewer of the original series, but I felt like a kid counting down to Christmas. I was so excited for it. And actually, it got released on YouTube right at the start of our patrons hangout on Sunday. So we had to wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I made a little joke about how everybody was just going to jump off the hangout to go watch it. Um, I caught it today, yeah. Um, so it's it's quite fresh for me. Um, but like you say, you know, you you messaged me saying make sure you watch it, Joe, because of it'd be good to get your opinion because you didn't watch it as a child. You know, you're not too familiar with it. Um, yeah. yeah, I'll give it a thumbs up. I'll give it a thumbs up. It 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 was weird because it was like it was starting, and I was like watching it, and I was like, I've not really got any nostalgia for this, but I can imagine so many people like sitting there watching it, like it's that like 
that moment like in the cinema when you watch the new big film of like you get goosebumps i could imagine i imagine some people felt that way like i'm not, I'm not gonna intro. lie when when the intro came on and the, and the music came i was like goosebumps all over <laughs> like, so, I, I was 11 years old again yeah so, seriously so you guys tell me so was the music and the intro and stuff was that it, it, it was new it was okay, new, so new but like it had the same vibes and oh okay I'd say the attitude of the Games Master was exactly the same. Like, yeah. the thing about Games Master was it wasn't amazing and a thrill ride for the whole time. You know, there were there were boring sections in it. There were there were quite nerdy sections, and and I think it stood up compared to a lot of TV that you see, especially on E4 and stuff like that mm. at the moment. Mm. I think it was entertaining, and that's that's the key kind of thing for me. Um, it was always about cutting edge games as well because I've seen a lot of people say, "Oh, they didn't play any retro titles in there." But every time I watched Games Master when I was a kid, it was because I wanted to see the latest stuff that like wasn't released, and and I was a bit surprised that they went back a bit and they played like Beat Saber and Splatoon, which is kind of a bit old, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. Where I would have loved to see like the maddest kind of latest VR stuff, and maybe they'll get onto that because there has been like a break for quite a few years so they've got to catch up with a lot of stuff really i think you know because you and i watched it as kids ravi and we've got a big international audience as well which is why i thought joe's perspective was quite good because yeah, yeah. you know a big chunk of our audience who never watched the original version and maybe you can watch them all on youtube if you know you're interested in the 90s series you know it was a big british gaming television show back in the day but this um this reboot of it 23 years later i've got to say the intro music was pretty much identical to the original oh was it um Slight remix, yeah, you know, a few extra drums and stuff near the end. The logo was the same logo that the 90s series had, which for me, when I saw that come up on screen, that to me was like, oh my God, it's back. I don't know how you feel, guys, about this, but I feel every TV show that I've watched after the pandemic, there's a kind of dryness about it where, where there's like, you know, people obviously have to keep a distance, but also... The audience, there's not as many as there was before. So it kind of feels like yeah. you're in a bit of an empty room. So when people are clapping and they're like, woo, it feels a bit kind of soulless and stuff. And that's not only with Games Master, but I've seen that happen on so many other shows, you know, when they've got yeah. half the size of audience and it hasn't got that mad kind of roar that the old one had. But, uh, you know, they did really well for filming in the kind of situation they are. But I always think there's a little bit, a little bit kind of missing in the in the post pandemic uh, television world. Yeah, the audience was interesting because yeah, the original. You're right; they probably had about a hundred, two hundred kids there, didn't they? All screaming. But this time, my brother pointed this out. He said the audience is all middle aged men, and you know, and, and it felt main, more top geary. And the main, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The main presenter did say like, "Welcome to Games Master." And he's like, after 23 years, I'm sure like millions of middle-aged men are like here to watch the show kind of thing. So that it did make me laugh. Like they, they're fully aware that like probably half their audience, maybe even more, you know, uh, are from the original 90s show. The thing that got me was like, I don't want to like rag on anybody, but the supposed Games Masters contestants, I wasn't. I wasn't all too impressed with their skills, to be perfectly honest. Um, they were always terrible back in the day, though. The celebrity oh, okay. guests they got on were always awful. It was always the kids that beat them, which and, is why, and, you know, when Big Boy Barry's son... So, uh, this is where I was a little bit confused as well. Were, yeah. Are they celebrities? Were the people competing celebrities? Like, I Apparently so. I wasn't familiar with any of them. I, was, I wasn't familiar with well, any Well, also, either. they'd have this, like... They did it quite well with the choices because they'd have this 
thing where they bring on like you know the gaming expert or the the the, the like person that was the best at Mortal Kombat and then like they'd line yeah. up people to fight against them. So they kind of had that video um like gamers that were the big ones. So that yeah. was the whole thing about Big Boy Barry. He was meant to be like really fantastic at, at video yeah. games on Games World. So he'd be bought in as one of the characters in there. Got yeah. Obviously trying to do that with a uh, little boy Larry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is uh his son. And that yeah. they're going to turn that, them into like the video game pros that come yeah. in. And I mean, he was the most impressive, the son, the little boy. To be yeah, <laughs> he wiped the his floor. attitude was amazing. <laughs> yeah, he was he was the best. Um, and you know, and you know, the first guy they did the Super Mario thing, and they literally only went one wrong once. So you know, yeah. so people they held their own and stuff like that. But yeah, I think it was good. I'll definitely stick with it and watch it. I'll be watching every single episode, no doubt. And I thought the girls who did Call of Duty, they were, you know, I, I'm nowhere near as good at Call of Duty, especially on that <laughs> mode. I'd have got my ass handed to me. I just, I, I felt like they could have picked better guns. That's all I'd say about that. <laughs> but then there's the two guys with ketchup and mustard, who I think were from Nottingham, if I'm right, where, where we record the show, who um, played Mortal Kombat. And they were hyped up as like, you know, massive Mortal Kombat veterans. And yeah. they didn't even use like the... Um, half the moves in the game you know you get the fatal blows kept coming up and they weren't using it and it cost one of them around which i was surprised at. i i, I just loved um trevor mcdonald where he went yeah. he went jamaican and he was like wagwan yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was so funny well, yeah. well i will what i will say about ketchup and mustard is i am i'm actually familiar with them too funny enough they they have a channel called pndk and m uh, where right. they, they do like the entire competitive history of every single mortal kombat game in every single Mortal Kombat character. And they've got like 130,000 subscribers. And what right. I will say about that is they actually, if you watch their channels, they say why you shouldn't use like the X-ray moves and stuff like that. That's all I'll say about oh. that. That's all I'll say about There was that. one moment though, it was like literally just about to, the, the energy was almost equal, but one of them had um, a fatal blow and he didn't use it and he could have won it. But then, yeah. yeah. The thing is with Games Master, you know, we spoke to Dominic Diamond and Dave Perry about the original series and often it'd be like, right, let's do that game again. And we're going to film three different versions and, you know, cut the, maybe it was something like that. Maybe, you know, yeah, Just to try maybe. and get the perfect take of it. But. Yeah, you, you watch it and the life bar keeps moving up and down. <laughs> yeah, which I think did happen in the original sometimes. Um, but I've got to say, yeah, Trevor McDonald, because you look at the older series and Patrick Moore was the same. You know, generally someone who's regarded as very serious and everything will come out with just stupid lines or, you know, like Trevor did, laugh when someone... You know, got sent into the abyss and died, and just coming out of random phrases. I thought he absolutely nailed it. I thought he was fantastic. Yeah, I'd love to hear what what our listeners think about it as well. And uh, you know, I've seen I've seen overall kind of praise, but I I can see if some people don't like it as well. You know, there's a a lot of people that hopefully will be introduced to the series as well. I've seen so many posts where people say I've not seen the original Games Master, but I enjoyed this, which is like pretty good actually because it brings it to a whole new group of people and they might they might be able to go back and look at the older shows as well because they're all available online and i've seen people watching it with the kids as well you know like my, my brother did with my nephew you know introduced him to games master and you know he loved it so um it's just good to have gaming back on telly again don't you think even though telly's dying yeah <laughs> yeah but just you know mainstream mainstream tv covering it again so uh i think there's only three episodes if i'm right um I've got a feeling they're going to be out every Sunday for a couple of weeks. It's going to be on E4 on Wednesday evenings. But um, I've, I've got a feeling it's a bit of a tester. And maybe if it does well, you know, it might be 
ongoing and be back permanently. Who knows? I, I saw the Crystal Maze did well and then they killed it yeah. after two series. So hmm. I've got to say, knows, imagine yeah. Games Master's cheaper to make than the Crystal Maze. Yeah, it, all them sets I, I must say as well, the sets, it looked like a nice venue, but it did look a bit cheap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it didn't look as lavish as the original. Yeah, yeah you're right. Um, but yeah, so if you want to watch it, I mean, if you're outside the UK, it is on E4's YouTube channel, and I'll link that up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Welcome back, Games Master. Nice to have you back. Now, Atari, obviously a company that we've covered on this show numerous times in uh, various guises in recent years. I mean, we had the, uh, the Atari hotels that were opening in uh, Vegas, I believe it was, and then we had the, the Atari cryptocurrency they were working on, which... Um, was all a little bit bizarre. Um, however, now they're going kind of back to roots, it seems, by selling rare, unreleased 2600 games in cartridge format as part of a new scheme they've got called Atari XP. Yeah, you forgot about the VCS there as well. <laughs> yeah. I was trying my best to forget about the VCS. <laughs> it was fully aware of the VCS. <laughs> so, so is this. I'm not too familiar with this. So is this coming directly from Atari then, is it? Like, yeah. it's not like a Kickstarter or anything like that, like Atari no, no. are doing this themselves. Yeah, so if you go to um, AtariXP.com, um, which is their website for this. So what they're doing is, I mean, these games that they've got on there, um, they're kind of bigging it up as, um, these are kind of unreleased games. I mean, all of these games, you can get the ROMs and stuff that have been floating around online for years. But I think a lot of these kind of were in that kind of 1983 video game crash yeah. era. Yeah. So I mean, stuff like um, Aqua Venture, um, which I mean, I'm, I'll admit, you know, I'm not a big Atari gamer. Um, I don't really know all that much about the system. You know, it was yeah. kind of. I think we all agreed before even my time. Um, but you know, I've got an Atari twenty six hundred. The games are very simplistic on that platform, but obviously a lot of legacy. And I know there is a huge fan community for it. Uh, but what they're doing with these games is they're really games that you know are not easy to come by on cartridge format. So they're putting these out on special collector's editions, so you can get these. The price of them is quite high, mm. but these are original Atari 2600 games in a cartridge. You can play on your original console, and it's games like um, Aquaventure, Saboteur, and Yars Return, which was the, um, I believe it was a fan mod of Yars Revenge. Right. Um, it wasn't like an official sequel, if I that, That's the most right iconic one that stands out to me. Yeah, uh, Yars return, but uh, saboteur as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it does. It does look good. They're like properly full releases, and uh, you know Howard Scott Walshall that um, we actually had on the show designed saboteur as well, and uh, mm. I'm sure he was involved in some of the early ones and uh, was notorious with the uh, video game crash what, as well. What, what I do love is the special edition, the collector's edition, like you say, the video game crash of 1983. They're doing 1,983 copies of the oh, collector's nice. editions ones. But, but, but this is weird, nice right? <laughs> this is weird. I was looking at it and I'm like, okay, so the collector's edition, you're doing 1,983. Standard edition, you're doing 1,500. Yeah, so the that- standard one's <laughs> going to be rarer than the collector's yeah. edition. That, that made me laugh as well. Yeah, standard edition is actually probably going to be more collectible. So the standard edition's $49.99 and then the collector's edition units are going to be $149.99. So if you wanted all three collector's edition's versions, that's going to set you back, you know, $450. So yeah, yeah. pretty steep, like you say, Dan, but it's very cool. It is really, really cool. And these look high quality. I mean, mm. if you go on to, yeah, it's atoriexp.com, um, you can click through and look at the, they've got some photos of the product there as well. Um, they all come, you know, on cartridges, nice 
labels, you know, look like original 2600 games from back in the day, um, made from special plastics, they've put it. You also get a nice box as well. Um, the limited edition version, the collector's uh, the limited edition collector's version of it. That comes in a massive box by the look of it. Oh, okay. Um, definitely a bit of a shelf hogger. Um, you've got instruction manuals, bonus material in there as well. Um, they've got a uh, poster. collectible pin. Yeah, yeah hard style. Hard, hard style. <laughs> Not hard style music. No, hardcover book as well. Yeah. And a digital copy of the game that's playable on the Atari VCS. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think 1,983 people even bought the Atari VCS uh, modern version. So, Maybe this um, will be yeah. the killer app that they're waiting for. <laughs> I've got to play my digital copy of Yars Return on my VCS. <laughs> so, I mean, we did get sent this off a few people. I think these were actually... You can get these games on. I mean, obviously, the ROMs are out there, like I said. I think they're on a couple of the flashback consoles as well, okay. you know, that came out yeah. back in the 2000s. So they're not, you know, hard to find games in terms of playing them, getting getting them actually on a, an official cartridge is. Um, and a 607 in our Discord um, sent this story to us. And I just think, yeah, I mean, it is nice to see the Atari brand being used for something relevant, I think, to what you expect them to, to be doing. Yeah, totally. It's like, I, I don't really care about the Atari Hotel and stuff. It, it makes yeah. a good thing for us to talk about in the podcast, but like, these are actually really cool. And if you're a collector of 2,600 games, then, you know, $50 each mm. standard edition with it kind of all printed and, uh, you know, in an actual cartridge. Yeah, I can I can imagine people who love these and getting them on the shelves. And to be honest, these look like they were just brands that they had hanging around so they could just uh, straight away produce it. Hopefully there'll be more. And that price is not too, I mean, I've seen people complaining that it's way too expensive, but forty nine ninety nine for like a, a you know, boxed, game with a manual and i don't think that's bad actually but you know these generally go to people that are probably never going to open them they'll just put them on shelves as collector's items well, like us. <laughs> yeah exactly well it's like you know the limited run games you know that they're generally around similar prices aren't they yeah that is very true um and you are right you know i've got two limited run games and i've not opened them you know i've got the digital copies of those games already and just bought them so they can sit in the cellophane on my shelf so you are very you are very right there <laughs> But I bet you haven't got the digital copies on your Atari 26 VCS console. No, I don't. There you go. <laughs> so you haven't even got an Atari VCS. You can borrow Dan's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can borrow mine anytime you want. <laughs> so uh, we'll link that up if you want to get hold of those. Um, I think they're available very soon on their website, and you'll find it in our show notes at theretrohour.com. And we're going to talk about Resident Evil Dreamcast, a special edition of that in just a moment, and a remake of a classic terrifying board game in just a moment. Before we do... Let's take a quick second to give a big thank you to one of our favourite supporters. I mean, we love them all, of course, but Beer52, who've uh, supported this podcast for years and years now. And really, it seemed relevant at this time of year. You know, the party season's here. Is there anything better than sitting down, playing a few video games and getting some free beer? Those magical words, Joe. Magical, magical words. Free beer. What, What could be better than free beer and Christmas together? There you go. Well, the festive season is here and uh, keeping in the spirit of giving, our friends at Beer52 are offering you actually more than eight this time. They've got a special Christmas deal on where you can get 10 free beers because we're feeling really festive. All you've got to do is head to this website right now, beer52.com slash retro. That is beer number five, number two.com slash retro. You just cover the £5.95 postage, claim your free case of 10 beers. And if you do it before 17th of December, 
they'll get the extra two in there, so you get ten completely free. Normally, it's only eight. Now, Beer 52 is a beer club like no other. They actually have beer experts who go around the world trying to find the best beer available anywhere on the planet. And each month, you get this gorgeous little case through the door, um, and it comes with beers from different parts of the world. So that means, you know, I've been a Beer 52 member for about three years now, and I think there's been, uh, you know, beers from more than 40 countries across five different continents, you know, that I've seen them do as well. And uh, the thing about it is, if you've got friends coming over for Christmas parties or Christmas dinner as well, there is something for everyone in here as well. Like, you know, Ravi, you like your IPA, you like your light L's and stuff, don't you? So oh, definitely. Yours choose a light option. Yeah, it's good to have the choice. Yeah, so if dark beer is not your thing, choose a light option, and um, as well as the delicious beer, you will get ferment magazine which you don't realize how interesting beer is until you have a little scroll through um, ferment magazine really interesting delves into the beers the breweries a background on them the stories as well and at joe's favorite bit you get two delicious snacks as well to wash the beer down with absolutely always my favorite part especially when you're 10 beers deep yeah well you, normally you open the box and you're munching it before you've even looked at the cans to be honest <laughs> yeah this right. is very true <laughs> <laughs> so after redeeming your first case you'll join the monthly beer club um no minimum commitment you can pause or cancel at any time if it's not for you just try the beer see what you think if you want and support the podcast beer52.com slash retro and a big thank you to our friends at beer52 for their support of our show now, this is quite well-timed, actually, because we did our patrons' exclusive podcast over the weekend, the Retro Hour After Hours, which was all about the Sega Dreamcast. And what about this? If you've got to spare $18,000 down the back of the sofa, Joe, you could get yourself a Resident Evil-themed Dreamcast, which I imagine, you know, Resident Evil being your favourite game franchise, and you being our Sega boy, this must be a match made in heaven for you. I, I want it to be a match made in heaven, but... $18,000 is just ridiculous, if you ask me. Now, Ravi has done some research um, on the actual rarity of some of these consoles, which is really interesting because he was telling me about it earlier today. But yeah, I mean, it is cool at the end of the day. So this is a Japanese exclusive clear blue Dreamcast, which came out with Code Veronica, Resident Evil Code Veronica, or Biohazard Code Veronica, as it's known in Japan and you know you get the limited edition box limited edition version of Code Veronica you also get a matching VMU the memory card with the console as well as well as you know the clear blue controller but what makes it rare is the Resident Evil Stars logo is on the top of the uh, mm. the Dreamcast which is quite interesting because of there's not I mean correct me if I'm wrong I mean you guys probably don't know but the Stars don't really come into Code Veronica that much Wesco who is an ex Stars member is in that game, but and, and Chris Bradfield, I guess, who is a Stars member. So yeah, I guess they are in the game. Correct me, I'm, I'm mm. wrong there. But they made 200 of this console, so it, it is pretty rare. And this is the only one at the moment, which is like on. Is it on eBay? It's just yeah, they've, they've yeah. listed it at on buy it now. It's on 18k. It now, 18K 18, so I don't know if anybody's 18K. bought it now yet, but um, I think they'll probably take an offer. But still, that's. But, I guess this is someone thinking they've hit the gold mine here. Yeah, and I, I guess it's somebody who bought it and then kept it in pristine condition because the listing's saying it's in absolute mint condition. Is it water graded? No, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's just it's just the box. It's not sealed or anything like that. Now, if it was sealed, maybe with the whole yeah. stuff that's going on at the moment with all you know sealed games and stuff like that, maybe it's sell for eighteen thousand, or maybe somebody from water will buy it for 18,000 but yeah it just it just seems a little bit steep but funny enough there is another code veronica themed variation 
of the Sega Dreamcast, which they made 1,800 units for, which is also on eBay, but that's $2,500. Um, it's it's weird because I've seen these things around for years because yeah. um, there were like loads of different versions of Dreamcast stuff and that they'd be like associated with games or you'd have like clear cases, mm. gold cases, stuff like that. The Hello Kitty uh, yeah. was a famous one because it's kind of pink and uh, transparent as well. But um, I, I remember another one. I was just looking at this site console variations and it's got like six pages of different Dreamcast uh, consoles. And the rarest one seems to be uh, Rage 2 with uh, Anarchy symbol on, on, the, on the top of it. But um, mm. interestingly, there was a Fred Durst ones. I don't know if you remember the, the yeah, singer from, from Limp Bizkit yeah. signed a load. Yeah. Well, I think inter- we covered that years in, in, ago. Yeah, yeah, I think we did. You're right. In, interesting, you should say, about, you know, other variations. But that that's what got me is when you sent me this is, there is another, so a third Resident Evil Code Veronica variation um, of the Dreamcast, but this one is actually an unlicensed release, which came out in Germany um, as part of a competition where nine, uh, I think it was nine of them were, were made in the end, where they were airbrushed by a artist called T. Ratchu, and it was part of a competition where you could win win this version of the Dreamcast. So apparently there's nine of these airbrushed ones out there. Now, in terms of like, authenticity of it and stuff i guess they just bought normal dreamcasts gave them to the artist and then he airbrushed over them so mm. it's like are they official are they not official but oh, it, it, it's, it's on it, there you know it's it, on the, it's on like the, the um sega dreamcast divers um mm. console you know uh that 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 was really weird and odd so that one stood out but there were so many variations of this and mm. it actually reminds me of um the game gear where they had so many different variations of the game gear they had like coca-cola versions uh you know um, white one yeah white one blue ones you know all, all kind of different types and some were tied into promotions and stuff like that as well and i think as well the fact that the dreamcast only sold nine million units probably is why you know these kind of collector's editions are rarer than they maybe are on other consoles yeah maybe but you know considering you like you say it sold nine million units there is like Ravi said, there's a good, like, 50 variations of the Dreamcast mm. when you look on it. I mean, a lot of them are Japanese, a hell of a lot of them are Japanese and just have, like, a print on the top of them. But, you know, I always thought it was, like, the N64 was the one which had the most variations. But, you know, it looks like it could be the Dreamcast, to be perfectly honest. Well, that R7 one, Regulation 7, I used to always see that everywhere uh, as, a, as a rare one. You know, people mm. would be uh, selling them in shows and stuff. Um, that I, I bet they're getting quite expensive as well you know it, it obviously we see these auctions all the time and we talk about them on the podcast we often don't follow them up and actually see if they've sold though so whether it's going to sell for that amount because um, you know, whenever i read these stories i think oh why didn't i buy like you know uh the pikachu edition of the n64 back in the day and keep it boxed or you know i always think when i see you know the wii u and that was on sale why didn't i buy an extra one and keep it in the attic it'd be worth 20 grand in 20 years obviously you never know the way the market is going to go yeah but it doesn't make you think that you know i don't know if these things are selling or whether they're just headline grabbing things. People are just things, being be optimistic and enthusiastic about yeah. them selling for $18,000 on, on eBay. So, yeah, maybe one day we should do a dedicated episode where we troll through everything that we've ever discussed on the show and we go back and see if they sold. <laughs> that would be that a long switch, That switch is never going to be successful. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a 
this article that I'll link up in our show notes on inputmag.com. I mean, they, they mentioned it at the end, they you know kind of how ridiculous this is. If you want to trade your kids' college funding for a piece of 20-year-old plastic, you can do it now on eBay, which, uh, you know, does put it into perspective, I think. Something that's coming back, though, that you don't have to find, you know, a 30-year-old version of this is a board game. It was actually a board video game called Atmosphere that's returning from the dead after smashing its target on Kickstarter. Now, I'm only aware of this game from uh, James Rolfe when he did the um, his, board, ga- his um, board James series where he covered board games, and that was one of my favourite video series that James has ever done. Um, and he played Atmosphere probably about five years ago on his YouTube channel now. Are you guys familiar with this game, then? Do you remember it from back in the day? I, I, I don't remember specifically this game, but I remember the the vein of these games you know the video yeah. videotape games where you would play them and then pause them and and it just so happens that most of the ones i remember or ever see i do remember them always being horror games or kind of like yeah. sherlock holmes kind of mystery games but this seems to be from looking at it and just kind of like the little bit of research we've done on it this seems to be like probably one of the more famous ones um yeah. and you know what like obviously I guess like a few games like seen it and stuff like that you know the DVD games in the early like 2000s kind of recaptured what this game is doing you know that kind of like you know interactive digital kind of aspect of it but you know what I've not really seen that and so I mean I could be completely wrong like people are probably like laughing at me now and going Joe there's you know so many of these games they, they were everywhere when I, I haven't were... I was gonna say I haven't seen anything like this recently well when I was like younger going yeah. round you'd have like Amigas on other car boot sales because everyone yeah. was getting rid of them. And then a couple of copies of Atmosphere. <laughs> you'd oh, have yeah. like all the expansions as well and stuff. And uh, they were everywhere. I must have had about three copies boxed of Atmosphere. Oh, wow. Um, in really good quality. And it was always one thing that you'd say, let's play Atmosphere and sit down and play it. And then the ham acting and stuff, you'd just be, oh, I can't be arsed, let's play Monopoly <laughs> or something, you know. It was a, it was one of those kind of things, but I don't know. It was just absolutely everywhere from what I remember. And um, Well, it was also called um, Nightmare in some parts of the world as well, so there's two different names for it. Um, originated from Australia. But the way this game works, if you haven't played it, so it's a multiplayer game, you know, like a, an adventure game. You mm. sit down and play, it's a board game. You put a videotape in, though, that lasts for an hour. And there's this character on there called the Gatekeeper who uh, just randomly pops up. So the tape goes quiet. You get this kind of plinky-plonky music, you know, just away in the background. Then all of a sudden this happens. Whose turn is it next? Who is just about to roll the dice? Answer me! If you fail to answer yes, my Gatekeeper in time, you must roll a six. Before you can play again, his accent's slightly confused. I think, yeah. um, not quite sure where he's meant to be from, but yeah, and just that coming on. Can you imagine that the room's all quiet and that just blasts? Yeah, out and the then telly. you can that just fast forward and kind of see what happens later <laughs> on as well. What What makes me laugh is if you're really familiar with this game, I guess you would know when it happens after yeah. like five or ten minutes on it being on video. So I'm guessing the new version, it's coming on dvd or is you know like some sort of file that you can download for your ipad or computer or phone or whatever and i guess maybe i mean i'm completely shooting in the dark here like different variations so it doesn't just happen like at seven minutes in do you know what i mean every single time you play kind of thing i'm not sure if they've changed it i think it's still the same video oh is it it. um 
Yes. Apparently, it expands the original it, with deluxe it will be game streamed, extras. Basically. Streamed online. Is it? Okay. That's what they're saying. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. yeah. That makes sense. I should know that. <laughs> I mean, it, but it looks like the same video from the original, doesn't it? The same guy. Yeah, it does. I mean, it, it looks cool, and you know, it's the 30th anniversary of it, and it's definitely done well because they wanted. Now this is in pounds. I'm guessing it was in dollars for the odd number. They want. They needed forty eight thousand five hundred twenty nine. And they so far at the point of recording this done a hundred and seven thousand pounds, so they've mm. doubled what they needed. So it's definitely a popular game. But to be perfectly honest, I'll just come and play one of Ravi's free copies. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 in Australian dollars, but they um they actually uh available on YouTube. I don't know if they've been taken down, but I do remember like the whole version of the game was yeah available on YouTube. But it looks cool. They've got like you know some. You can get an atmosphere skeleton key and walk around with it on your belt and stuff. And like, if you're really into it, it's a cool collector's thing. You know, it always reminded me of Crystal Maze or or Nightmare or that that kind of band of uh, games. You know, that's what I thought it was. I thought it was Nightmare. You know, the UK version of Nightmare, like the board game of it. When I first saw the article, and I was like, oh, but then realized what it was. But yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm, you know, I'm, I think it's cool that they're bringing it back. Yeah, I mean, board games seem to have had a bit of a, you know, revival in the last few, well, especially pre-COVID. Yeah. I remember a lot of kind of board game cafes been setting up in, you know, most major cities here in the UK. And it is cool to see these kind of classic games coming back. I mean, I remember stuff like Heroes Quest and Key to the Kingdom. You know, I've still got my original version of that from back in the early 90s. Amazing game. So I think, you know, there is a lot of nostalgia around these late 80s, early 90s games. So um, the fact that these Kickstarters, I mean, it proves that, you know, that it smashed it. Definitely seems a bit of an untapped market. I mean, we've had so many video game re-releases, but getting these kind of remakes of classic board games, I think, is very cool. So if you want to get hold of that, um, it's on Kickstarter right now, smashing its target already. I'll link that up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, last week we were talking about Dune, obviously um, massive movie, you know, back out in cinemas again now, that new version of it. Um, we were talking about the games last week, that lost Game Boy Advance game that's coming back now, the, the Mega CD version, the Amiga game back in the day that came out on Virgin Games. Obviously a massive, massive franchise. Well, this is quite an interesting article on Vice. It turns out the screenplay of Dune um, was actually written by, you know, screenwriter Eric Roth. He banged out the entire screenplay using an MS-DOS program called Movie Master. And apparently he writes everything on this old MS-DOS program that can only hold 40 pages in its memory. What makes me laugh about this is just kind of like the heartfelt, genuine reason for this that is that is he said that he's scared of change. <laughs> like, mm. this, it works for him, so, so why change it? I mean, it sounds like it's a bit of a pain in the ass with it only being able to do 40 pages because aren't, like, you know, um, the screenplays for films, like, hundreds of pages long. Like two, yeah, I mean, I guess he breaks it. He up. breaks it up and everything like that. So yeah. you know, disc one, disc two, or whatever kind of thing, disc three, um, and all that jazz. But I just love the honesty of it. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit scared of change, and this works for me. You know, um, <laughs> like I, I do a lot of writing and stuff, and to focus, I put a vinyl record on, and I make sure I've got a mechanical keyboard and kind of work on that. And you, you just get in the zone and try and turn everything else off. But I, I think this is cool. You know, there's a certain thing about focusing on an old program or just having it to do the one task. And mm. at least at least he's doing it on MS-DOS. He's not like one of these hipsters on a typewriter. Um, <laughs> but even though that, that, that could be pretty cool doing it on a typewriter, I used to have a little electronic typewriter, actually. 
And uh, I can imagine just writing something on there could be just really satisfying. Yeah, I mean, he does go on to say it's also superstition, which I guess links in with what you just said. You know, it kind of gets him in that mindset and everything. And also, apparently, he does like the 40-page limit because of he actually does break it down into acts of the film. And, mm. you know, forty page, if he can't do it in 40 pages, he knows it's too long for the film anyway. I, I, lo- I love the thing that he has to print off a hard copy and then people oh, really? scan it. <laughs> and uh, to put it on their computer, they have to obviously put it through, like, OCR, optical character recognition or something. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, just, to, just to get it going, because he can't email or send anything. I imagine there must be a way to get a text file out. Yeah, maybe if he's in but... DOSBox or something, there'll be a, yeah. a way to... Oh, God. Let's help him configure DOSBox. <laughs> well, actually, he mentions that as a positive, though. He's saying this: no one can get to this. Yeah, true. Because it's not on the internet, yeah. you know. And in a way, I mean, you know, we, we've we've talked about it before. You know, George Martin, who wrote um, Game of Thrones, you know, he wrote words. He uses WordStar on MS DOS for a similar reason. But also, he says, you know, because it's not connected to the internet, it can't be hacked. No one can steal it and leak it, you know, on the internet. Which for security. Having a disconnected 30-year-old machine, I imagine the only way anyone, anyone's going to get a copy of that is break into his house with a floppy disk, and, and which is obviously this, quite rare. This video that they've done on Creative Spark, um, he's, he's got an old keyboard. Uh, mechanical. An, an old mechanical keyboard and a DOS keyboard that looks like of the era. And he's also yeah. got an old-school phone next to it as well, so he's, <laughs> he's proper rocking it, yeah. It looks very comfy, I've got to say. So, uh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, I've mentioned it on the show before. I mean, I've got my tax return that I need to do soon. You know, I've left it a bit late this year. Uh, But normally I do my tax return on an Amiga, you know, just because I haven't got Twitter flashing up every five minutes or, you know, I haven't got, oh, I'll just check Facebook or see what my, you know, the fact that I can just dedicate a machine to everything else off, yeah, put a bit of soft music on the background, just sit there and focus on it, you know. So I think it does have advantages because today, I mean, you know, we're doing this podcast now. I've got Twitter messages popping up. My phone's going off in the court. You know, it's there's constant distractions all the time, and sometimes it can be hard just to focus on one task on a machine. I think now I'm now looking up my electronic typewriter on eBay. <laughs> so if you want to check out that video, I'll link it up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our chat all about the secret history of Mac gaming, let's give a quick but big mention to our incredible patrons who, of course, keep the Retro Hour podcast coming out each and every Friday, allow us to keep producing the show for you, getting these incredible guests on the show each week as well. We actually did our latest patrons hangout of the weekend. You know, whenever we do our patrons hangout, my room is a complete tip afterwards because when we're doing it, I'm like, we're talking about old video game magazines, weren't we? And I've been rebuying a load off eBay recently, and I'm like, oh, I've got to show everyone this issue. I've got to show everyone this one. And my floor is now covered <laughs> in old video game mags. Oh, yeah. It, it, was, it was an awesome chat, and it was great to see everyone. And I'm glad they didn't all run off when I mentioned uh, Games Master and <laughs> previewed straight away. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there were some cool subjects uh, discussed, and uh, we're chatting about retro gaming raffles and stuff like that. Um, but, mm. you know, it's it's really great having this kind of patron support and having a, a group of patrons as well because, uh, you know, you guys really make this show. Without you guys, we'd be broadcasting and chatting to nobody. Yeah, and it allows us to pay for all the running costs of the show and everything having Patreon there. And, you know, we just love the community too. I mean, one thing we were talking about was um, our first ever mobile phones. And afterwards, I was actually going on eBay to try and find I, a, a Philips Savvy phone. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> 
they're quite pricey now, annoyingly. But yeah, I was tempted. Um, so yeah, we, we do our patrons hang out once a month on a Sunday evening. All our patrons get together. A bit of a virtual users group. And next time it's going to be a, a virtual Christmas party, the December one. So already looking forward to that. So if you'd like to join us for it, all patrons are welcome. And of course, you get other perks for being a patron of this podcast. You get the uh, usual show early. Most weeks you get it ad-free as well. You get extra content in there. We've done a couple of extra patron stories this week that only our patrons can hear. Uh, But also you get access to the exclusive patrons podcast that we do that comes out once a month, the Retro Hour After Hours, where we've actually just done about an hour and 20 minutes all about the Sega Dreamcast that was so much fun to do that episode, wasn't it? I absolutely loved going back and revisiting the Dreamcast. Um, A couple of people pointed out, Spoiler, that none of us picked Shenmue as our favourite game. Because <laughs> <laughs> we did our top five games, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, so Shenmue wasn't on the Shenmue list. Shenmue, unfortunately, wasn't on the list. But that's because there were so many great games that we spoke about, you know, and gave our thoughts on and stuff like that. But yeah, I loved that episode. Yeah, and actually, I've got my Dreamcast now. After we did it, it's back on my table now, getting ready to uh, set it up this weekend. So we get access to that as well. load of other perks as well, but really doing it to make sure this podcast comes out each and every Friday. And you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And a big thank you to our latest patrons, Tommy Retro Nerding. David Harling. Kevin Fisher and Philip Powell, who are all backed us this week on Patreon. We hugely appreciate your support. And if you'd like to join them, you'll find it right now on our website. All the details at theretrohour.com. All right, we're going to be chatting about the secret history of Mac Gaming in just a minute. Before we do, uh, just a moment to give a huge thank you to another big supporter of the Retro Hour podcast. And this is our friends at Retro Gamer Magazine. I've got the latest uh, rather substantial issue here in my hand. I'm going to flick through that. It'll the sound of magazines the, the, smell. the sound of real life information <laughs> it's just having a magazine i mean you know i mentioned you know in our patrons hangout i was going through my old gaming mags retro gamer has that vibe and it reminds me of the magazines that i loved as a kid and actually the uh, cover issue on the december um issue of retro gamer it's all about 20 years of halo combat evolved 20 years since halo came out now um and obviously what an incredible game and a franchise that still continues to this day. Well, that's kind of playing into the uh, 20 years of the Xbox as well, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, and, and that title really did make the Xbox a uh, fantastic one, Halo was. But, you know, there's some great stuff in this one as well. Stuff like they're looking at the Atari Jaguar Pro Controller. Do you have one of those? I have two of those next to me, actually. They're not the originals I've got. They did some, um, a guy did some repros of them a few years ago. So I bought them then. They're pretty identical to the originals, just without the Atari logo. But yeah, they're a lot nicer than the original controllers, which I know is a bit of an acquired taste, but yeah, definitely my preferred way to play Jaguar games. And they're also looking at the story of QuakeCon, which I'm I'm really interested in reading about, because that's just a legendary gaming event that still goes on to this day. What I also like about it as well, because I know some people will be like, Halo, that's only 20 years old. They've also got back to the naughty section and they also review a game that I absolutely love, Flintstones, for the Master System, which is really cool. <laughs> I love that, the fact that they pick out just games that, you know, you wouldn't expect them to cover as well like that. But I mean, they've got some big games from back in the day. Uh, Rainbow Islands, you know, talking about the um, Amstrad CPC port of that too. Um, also the making of Nigel Mansell's World Championship as well. I was a big fan of that game back in the day, actually, on Gremlin. A really good racing game back in the day. Um, the Intellivision 2 in their Hardware Heaven section. So really, if you're a fan of our podcast, you're going to love Retro Gamer Magazine. You should be checking it out each month. And actually, we've got an incredible offer for you. Not only will you save some money on um, a Retro Gamer subscription, but also you will get a fantastic 
controller as well. So you will subscribe and get a free N64 Tribute or a Mega Drive Bluetooth controller. Now, this Mega Drive one is the six-button version, which I think is everyone's favourite Mega Drive controller, isn't it? Yeah, the six-button controller um, is absolutely awesome, which you can get for free. Or I really, really do like the N64 controller because if this is like the N64 controller that we all needed when we were kids, when the N64 mm. came out, <laughs> it is like a classic two-prong controller rather than that triple prong controller that we all got so it's a really tough one what to pick but they're both absolutely awesome controllers yeah so the mega drive bluetooth controller that works with your you know your windows machine mac raspberry pi ios and switch the tribute 64 controller you can get that as a usb version mm-hmm. works with all those two or a classic n64 port so you can use it on your original console so if you you know you love the n64 but you think i hate that controller this is perfect for it as well or to play you know the um, N64 games on the Switch are online right now as well. So get hold of Retro Gamer and support this podcast by using our exclusive link, magazinesdirect.com slash retropod. And maybe you already subscribed to Retro Gamer. Obviously, Christmas coming up. You could gift the mag to someone else. Keep the gift for yourself. Uh, magazinesdirect.com slash retropod. Get six months of Retro Gamer magazine with a retro controller absolutely free. And, of course, a big thank you to our friends at Retro Gamer for their support of our show. Right then, are we ready for the secret history of Mac gaming? Talking about some classic games. If you ever thought the Mac wasn't a gaming platform, we're going to change your mind with the author of this amazing new book. Richard Moss is our special guest next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for the main event then when we welcome on our special guest and get into this week's theme. Now, uh, we're going to be talking about classic Mac gaming and I think there is a bit of a, a misconception that you know today the Mac is not really seen as you know much of a gaming platform that wasn't always the case though and actually some really big franchises um, first started on the Mac so we're going to get into that and lots more with the author of this incredible new book The Secret History of Mac Gaming Richard Moss welcome to the show hello it's great to be here great to have you joining us now before we get into this I mean you're obviously a bit of a you know no stranger to podcasting you actually do your own podcast as well don't you I do. I, I make a show called The Life and Times of Video Games, which is this uh, sort of documentary style show. So I, I script these episodes uh, like a you know, long form magazine article or something um, mm. based on interviews and a whole lot of research. And, and I clip it all together, edit it nicely and uh, compose my own music and, and try and package a really nice story. Yeah, so if you enjoy our podcast and want to hear, you know, what it'd be like if we weren't so lazy and it was actually really well produced, have a listen to Richard's. It's, uh, I mean, you've had some people on, you know, like Chris Crawford, I was listening to that episode and, you know, it's it's just incredible. So amazing work on the podcast and I'll, I'll link that up in our show notes if people want to check it out. But of course, today we're going to be talking about Matt Gaming and uh, your new book as well. But it's always nice to kind of get a bit of background on our guest and kind of find out your history with computers. And I mean, was there like a history earlier than the Mac then? Where did it all kind of begin your interest in computers? Well, for me, it really did begin with the Mac. And that's largely down to uh, just my circumstances where um, my dad bought a Macintosh Plus. Uh, I don't know how he afforded it. Um, They were so expensive back then, like equivalent of $10,000 or something. So he probably poured his savings into it. But the the Mac Plus came out in the uh, mid to late 80s. I think it was about 86, 87. And then this was the first computer I ever used. And I was like, a, I was a baby when I first uh, saw it. And actually, my one of my earliest memories, I would have been maybe three or four years old. And I, I was actually, I was watching TV, I remember as well, uh, at the time. And we had 
the Mac in the in the corner of the living room, a few meters away from the TV, and I was watching like Banana Man or uh, Captain Planet, something like that. And some kids, kid kid friendly classic cartoon. And my brother had just got this new game. It was a few years old at this at that point, but he'd got this game, Alternate Reality: The City, which is a uh, I don't know how, how well you guys know it, but it's a it's a sort of open ended role playing game, a computer role playing game that was not a very good game, but very innovative, crazily forward thinking. It had all these insane systems, like there was a weather system in the in the game. Uh, you could put your money in the bank, and it would actually earn interest. It was ridiculously uh, complicated systems in the thing, and he put this game in, and I. Just, I heard him starting it up and I turned around and I was, what is that? And uh, the, the intro is really cool. There's like this spaceship coming down and uh, flashing lights. So this is black and white because it was Macintosh, a 1980s Macintosh. And they were only in black and white, but it still looked really cool and had great sound. And, and I was spellbound by it. What is this? And I just watched him play for, for the next hour. And that's really where it all began for me. You must have got a lot of stuff from the previous libraries. So like, you know, there must have been a lot of Apple II software that then went onto the Macintosh and kind of, you know, really, really helped because uh, uh, that was one of the kind of earliest platforms for for creating good gaming, wasn't it? The uh, Apple II. And there actually wasn't as much uh, conversion happening as you would think. And I think it's because the Macintosh was very difficult to make games for if you were used to the 8-bit computers of the day, the Apple II, the Commodore 64, the, the Spectrum, and so on. It was much higher resolution graphics. It was 512 by 342 pixels. It was entirely black and white, just black pixels on a white background. Uh, and so you'd get the illusion of grays through a technique called dithering, which is just using lots of dots uh, in different patterns. And you had a fully... Uh, interactive windowed environment that was mouse driven. So you had multiple overlapping windows in the system. You had a, a menu bar. You had just the, the fact that it was mouse driven was really novel and unusual. So it was a lot that you had to redo in converting your game. And in that era, ports were really quick and dirty. If you needed more than like a, a month or two to do your port, then you might not think it's worth the bother. So there'd be some conversions, but not a lot because the Mac audience was really fickle and it was a lot of work. And when you had a new platform as well, and so the install base wasn't very wasn't very big, people didn't bother. Well the Mac today, um obviously for you know PC gamers, it's not really regarded as much of a gaming platform, as I mentioned in the intro. Was that different back in the day though? Uh, it was always regarded with a bit of disdain. This goes back to a decision that Apple made in 1983 when they were getting ready to release the Macintosh because they had internally intended it as this very playful, fun system to use. It would be inviting and appealing. It, it even smiles at you on startup. There's this thing called the Happy Mac, this icon that appears on the screen when you first turn the computer on and it'd be a little smiling graphic of the Macintosh. And then it would say, welcome to Macintosh. So it was all a very friendly system. And they had intended that there, there would be games on the system because it's a playful utility machine for your home, just like the Apple II had been. But they also wanted to get into the business space. 
for them, this was really important. They wanted to take down IBM. They were always ambitious, Apple. So then when they're getting ready to release the Mac, they start hearing whispers from the business community. Oh, this thing's a toy. We can't take it seriously because it looks like a toy. It works like a toy. It's too much fun to use. Computers shouldn't be fun to use or easy to use. They should be hard because how do you do serious work in something that's so joyful? This was really the kind of thinking that they had. And so Apple marketing kind of freaked out and they backed up. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, this is a serious machine. You don't play games on it. This is a serious machine for serious work. And so they took this game that was going to be bundled with every Macintosh and they put it in a a separate product. This was called Alice or got released as Through the Looking Glass. It was a pretty cool real-time chess thing where uh, Alice in Wonderland is filling in for all the white pieces. Uh, You choose which one she plays at at any given time. And then they didn't give much support to the games industry. And then meanwhile, the games industry was like, well, this is a new platform. It's a lot of work to support it. We're going to sit back and wait and see what happens. And it was like another four years before Apple uh, actually said, oh yeah, games, maybe they do matter because they started to look at the education market. And I know um, Steve Jobs and Waz actually had like a history of gaming because they were at Atari and uh, uh, did Breakout. So um, uh, was this kind of a a strategy of um, uh, what what Steve Jobs was thinking at the time or, or did he have a bit more of a... A love for gaming. Jobs was never much of a gamer. He uh, he thought that he seems to have thought they were interesting, but he never really grabbed onto them like Was did. Was was always a big gamer, and he kept playing games on the Mac for years. And I've heard lots of stories from people who made shareware games in the nineties would say Was sent me a check, and I got it framed and I put it on my wall. <laughs> they're so excited it's, it was actually paid me money was has played my little obscure game but steve jobs uh, was never really a big games guy and uh, he was ousted from apple anyway in 1985 uh, after he lost control of the macintosh well what were some of the earliest mac games that are now regarded as classics early games i guess uh, the stuff from icom simulations uh, deja vu shadowgate were very influential games that, that had a quite a widespread. They got ported to the other the other platforms, the Amiga, the ST, uh, but also to the Nintendo, uh, where they were very popular. And they had been almost a direct response to the Macintosh. The the guys at ICOM they had a little bit of experience doing text adventures, and and they'd been doing some like business stuff. Then when they got the Macintosh, they saw what it was capable of, and they thought we can make an adventure game with graphics and with all the verbs on screen. Let's make the verbs something that you can click on. And they sort of invented the point-and-click adventure genre uh, in doing that. And you also had um, Chris Crawford, we mentioned before. Balance of Power was designed and developed on a Mac initially. That was a massively successful, very serious geopolitical simulation where... The goal is to prevent a nuclear war. I guess if you were into computer games on 16-bit systems in the 80s, you probably knew about Dark Castle and Shufflepuck Cafe. They started yep. with the Mac. And they're great games. At least on computers, they were great games. Uh, you know, Dark Castle has a very bad reputation among console gamers. And Crystal Quest from Patrick Buckland was another great one. And 
Yeah, those are probably the most influential, really early stuff from the, the mid-80s. Well, you mentioned the shareware scene there, and like, yeah. how important at that time was the shareware scene to like the growth of Mac gaming? Well, shareware was critical to the Mac gaming space. Um, there were shareware games on the Mac basically as soon as there was a Mac. When they're like back in 1984, uh, the the very very earliest Mac shareware games were coming out, and there was a really cool one released in '85 called um, Captain Magneto, uh, which was a sort of a top-down adventure game. It was inspired in large part by Ultima, where the developer wanted to, when he'd played Ultima, he wanted to be able to make friends with uh, all the, the bad creatures in the world. He didn't want to have it only be certain creatures would be scripted to be good guys and certain ones would be bad guys. He wanted something a bit more dynamic. So he coded his own his own version of that but then uh you had a whole shareware scene emerge a couple of years after that and probably a lot of it growing out of the games by this guy Dwayne Blem who made a nifty little game called Stuntcopter which basically everyone who had a Mac in the 80s or the early 90s has played it's a super simple game you just you have a a helicopter flying across flying back like around the screen, it, it's a wraparound screen, and you've got a tiny little stick figure dude hanging from the helicopter. You click to drop him, and he drops down, arms flailing, legs flailing around, and he either goes splat on the ground or he lands in a hay wagon. If he lands in the hay at the back of the wagon, that's a successful jump. If you do it five times, uh, you get more difficult. Um, it keeps getting faster and faster. Or if you land on the horse, the horse tips over, or like you can land on the driver, the driver tips over. It's a very cute, funny animation and like <clears throat> grunt sound going on. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> this guy was uh, really popular uh, for a couple of years in the scene. Sadly, he died um, after making his fourth shareware game, but not before he inspired this whole movement of uh, shareware on the Mac. And so you had it. Uh, other people come along, like a guy called John Calhoun, who made a paper airplane uh, puzzle game called Glider. You've got to uh, navigate a, a paper plane through a house and get it out the window past a, a cat that's lazily sitting on the windowsill and will swat you out of the out of the air. And you use the heat from uh, ducts on the floor to uh, give yourself a lift. So you go over the top of a duct, it pushes you up to towards the ceiling, and then you you direct your your plane down across and it's just a cool puzzle thing. Of course, you had a bunch of arcade-style games getting made. Solarian 2 was a a really popular one. Uh, It was inspired by Gallagher. Uh, Crystal Quest actually came from Patrick Buckland, which was a really successful commercial game. Came out of a shareware thing he'd made that's basically the same game but not as good, called uh, Crystal Raider. And then into the 90s, the commercial scene kind of faded away, except for a few companies. And so shareware is what kept things afloat. And you had companies emerge like Ambrosia Software and Freeverse and um, uh, Fantasoft. They did a game called Realms, uh, an RPG. You had these companies come along uh, that basically were the darlings of the Macintosh scene. And they're sort of the equivalent of uh, Apogee and Epic 
over on the, the DOS side. I, w- I was wondering, like, the success of these shareware titles. By the sounds of it, 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 it still didn't really convince Apple to kind of take the gaming scene really big or serious until um, maybe uh, until they entered the Power PC area, era, which we'll get on to a bit later. But, uh, yeah, th- were they just still head wrapped up in applications and stuff like that? Apple went back and forth a lot. Uh, There's this weird cycle, uh, and it's still going today, I think, where every few years somebody in a senior position at Apple says, we should do more about games. So suddenly it becomes this big drive. Let's get more game developers on board. Let's talk to them, find out what they need, make sure we build build up the technology base for them so that they can make better games more easily. And then a couple more years passes by and it becomes a low priority and they sort of forget about it, they lose interest. Or what happened at one point in the late 90s, they just flat out said, games don't matter. After the Pippin. (laughs) A a little ways after the Pippin, uh, a couple of years after that, this is when they were killing the games technology they had called sprockets, which uh, allowed Mm. for joysticks and stuff to be plugged in without um, too much coding on the developer's side to support them. And they were killing the Sprockets program and the guy who had been uh, tasked with maintaining and updating the Sprockets stuff all by himself because they'd laid off the rest of the team. He took exception to this and he got told games aren't important to a consumer computer platform. And he swore at the executive that if you think that you're an effing idiot, well, I mentioned the Pippin there, actually. I mean, did that have much of an effect on Mac gaming at all like in that era when the Pippin was on the market? <laughs> Not really. The Pippin didn't have an effect positively on anything. All it probably really achieved was to accelerate Bandai's uh, fall in fortunes. The Pippin was a, was a bit of a disastrous project from the start because Apple never fully bought into it. They, they were never... C- properly committed to helping Bandai make a great system. And they even put it in the contract that it had to be really a compromised system because it, mm. they didn't want anybody to think it was a low-cost Macintosh computer, even though in reality that's what it was. It had a Mac processor inside. It was running on a Mac operating system. So they wouldn't allow a hard drive to be included with the system. And that meant everything had to be run from CD-ROM. And CD-ROMs are still kind of slow. This is like 95, 96. And they they never made it a priority. And at the executive level, they just sort of wanted it to go away. Well, the first time I saw a Mac, I think, was in um, the late 80s. My auntie had a print shop and she used it, um, you know, because it had a nice high-res monochrome display and she used it for like printing out newsletters and that kind of thing i think the next time i saw one wasn't until i was at university and we had um power mac g3 and g4s i was quite interested because the mac wasn't all that popular over here in the uk until yeah we got around you know the, the early 2000s really what was it like um in australia and you know other parts of the world did the mac have outside the us much success in places a bit but not a lot i think in australia it was and this is anecdotal i don't know the data uh, anecdotally, it seems like it was a little bit bigger than the Amiga, which did reasonably well here. Uh, mm. So it, in Australia, it was sort of for, for a long time until mid to late 90s, there were three systems doing very well. The the Mac, the Amiga and the PC, then the Amiga 
faded away because uh, Amiga was fading away. But it was always a, a, a minority, a very clear minority. The PC was, was much bigger, uh, except in education, uh, I should say. Um, the, the Mac was fairly common in schools. I was I was wondering about the sim games because you mentioned Mac gaming before. There was there was, it was kind of seen as a bit serious, and uh, hmm. the sim games actually, even though they're quite serious, they brought a lot of fun to the title. How important were stuff like Sim City and uh, later Sim Ant, and then um, I even I even saw in your book that you'd mentioned uh, Sim Tower as well. Yeah, Sim Tower was uh, inspired by Sim City. Um, which has and it has a pretty cool story behind it, where um the creator Yut Saito was uh, just completely enamored with SimCity when he saw it running for the first time. He he told me that he played he watched it for like twenty four hours straight or something. He he was just so enraptured. How does this thing work? This whole city has come to life. It's amazing. So as for SimCity, it had started life on the Commodore sixty four, and Will Wright had had uh, coded what amounts to a prototype version of it on the Commodore 64, and he'd been unable to get it commercially published. And then he met this guy, Jeff Braun, at a party, and and that led to the foundation of Maxis. Uh, this story's been told before by other people at much greater length. With the uh, infrastructure that they created at Maxis, this team that they built around Will, they shifted SimCity to the Macintosh as the lead platform, they they sort of they re they ported the engine over, they remade a whole bunch of the game. They hired someone to do graphics, and that person basically took Mac Paint and made it a tool for painting a city to your screen instead of painting a picture on your screen. And Will had originally been inspired by the same ideas that inspired the Macintosh, because. Uh, there's a chain. There's a chain of uh, influences here. So Will was inspired by pinball construction set, which had been inspired by the work that uh, Bill Budge, who made pinball construction set, had done at Apple. Another yeah. Apple connection. He worked at Apple, and uh, he saw what they were doing with the Lisa, which was the Macintosh's predecessor, and um, that went back to what. Uh, had happened at Xerox Park in the in the seventies and early eighties, where they were building the ideas that inspired the Macintosh's whole um, desktop metaphor and the mouse and the the windowed interface and everything. So Will Wright had built a really clumsy version of of that idea on the Commodore sixty four. It wasn't really powerful enough a system to pull it off anyway. And then when it came to the Mac, their artist recognized that it was basically a city painting sort of game. You've got this tool palette that looks just like what Mac Paint looked like. And if if people listening, if you put up, if you look up a screenshot of Mac Paint and you look up a screenshot of the first SimCity, you'll see that they're very, very similar. The tool palette is almost identical, except you've got residential zone and police station and stuff instead of let's draw a square and a circle or um, some text or something as the icons on that left side of the screen. Well, one of uh, my exposures to uh, SimCity was actually the SimCity 2000 version was much better on the Mac. So um, a lot of Amiga users would actually emulate the Mac just to play 
the uh, Mac <laughs> version on their Amigas, which is uh, pretty crazy. But um, the, I, I remember that was just a really nice version of it. I, I loved it. I, that was that was the one for me too. I spent so many hours playing uh, playing SimCity 2000, and I had this city. Uh, I had this phase where I was naming all my cities after footballers. So I. At the city called Roberto Carlos that became a, a million plus uh, people in it. <laughs> I spent like a year building that city. Well, I mean, a lot of classic gaming franchises started out on the Mac. I often see people, you know, commenting in amazement on YouTube videos when they find out that Halo was originally a Mac game. Can you tell us some of the most famous ones that started life on the Mac then that you feature in the book? Well, yeah, Halo is possibly the most famous um, where it, it wasn't released on Mac first, but they. They were developing it on Mac and Windows uh, initially, and um, it owed a lot to the games that Bungie had made before Halo, which were uh, developed for Mac initially, um, the, the marathon first-person shooters and the myth strategy games, um, sort of real-time tactics strategy games. Then as for other really well-known stuff, Myst is the one that uh, always comes to my mind. Um, Myst was massive success on the pc it, it was the best-selling computer game of all time in the 90s until basically until the sims uh, took first place from it in i think 2002 but mist was a hypercard game and hypercard was uh, strictly only a macintosh um, tool it was like a if you think of the way web pages work it, it, it was much the same as as the way the web works, it was a, except there was no internet uh, for it. It was sort of like clicking through a web website on your computer in the 1980s and the early 90s. Uh, it was using hypertext and hypermedia language, and it was really, really easy to use. It was following the principles of the Macintosh, which are a, a computer for the rest of us. Anyone can use this thing. Anyone can make amazing stuff with it. It was a multimedia authoring system, and that very much uh, dates it, that term, doesn't it, multimedia? <laughs> yes, absolutely. So these, these two brothers, Robin and Rand Miller, they had been really fascinated by Hypercard when it first came out in 1987. Uh, Rand was actually working in a bank at the time, uh, and he had a wife and, a, and a, one or two kids, uh, young kids, and Robin was, like, he's several years younger than Rand. Robin was... Uh, at university, I think still living at home with with their parents, they had a Mac in the basement. Uh, Rand had a Mac in his home, and and Rand called Robin up and said, "Let's try and do an interactive children's book in Hypercard, and I'm going to send you a copy of this thing." And Robin is a very talented artist, and so when Robin got the thing, he opened it up and he got presented with this blank screen and all the basically all the same drawing tools that are in Mac Paint. And he thought, well, what do I draw? And just on a whim decided to draw a manhole cover. And then he's thinking, well, what what should I do now? What what What's going to be the reason that you turn the page? Or maybe you want to open the manhole cover. So now he draws a picture of the manhole with the cover off. And then he's suddenly thinking, Maybe I make a beanstalk grow out of this manhole. And at that point, he's got two diverging paths. You can go up the beanstalk or you can go down 
the manhole where the beanstalks just come from. And he realizes that he's he's not making a, a children's book. He just wants to keep exploring this possibility space. So he keeps drawing images and drawing and drawing and creating this whole world um, stream of consciousness. And that becomes a game called The Manhole, which was released in, I think, 1988 and uh, was the beginning of Cyan, the company that's still going today, still doing pretty well. Rand is still running it, actually. And so they made a couple more children's games, very similar to that, and then they wanted to do something more serious, more adult, and that eventually led them to uh, making what became Myst. And Myst was massive success. It got ported to the PC. They did Riven, which was almost as big a success. And, and then they were like, we don't want to do any more of this. And the next couple of Myst games were, were made by another studio while uh, Robin went off to explore new challenges. And Rand and the team at Cyan started to build a, an MMO in the Myst universe that never really panned out for them, sadly. Well, you mentioned MMOs there as well, and I, I was just going to say, wow, well, that was going on. Seventh Guest appeared as well, which was another, yeah. another, another huge title. But you uh, mentioned MMOs. Like, was network play a big element of gaming on the Mac? And was was there ever like a kind of play or online service where uh, people could do like over the internet? It was pretty big, and and there were a few Mac focused network play services. I think they were all pretty small time. Like there was one in California that got a fairly decent player base, but I don't think it really got beyond California and there are a few others scattered around. But network gaming was very big on the Mac because the Mac was always quite popular in the education space and uh, in offices. There, There were a lot of Macs in offices. And so as a result, there are a lot of places where you can have computers that are networked together. Then you you just needed to have cool games. And one game that uh, was really popular was called Bolo. Uh, It was like a a tank game, a tank shooting game from a top-down perspective. Really uh, complicated, but uh, very easy to to initially play. And... um, it had tens of thousands, maybe even into the six-figure numbers of players. It was just a shareware title and uh, was in continuous development for several years before the developer got hired at Apple. And Apple had a policy where you couldn't make stuff on the side. Once you join Apple, you had to cut all your side projects. So that was really big. You had um, Spacewood Ho was a cool game. Uh, This was a sort of a 4X style strategy game. FA-18 Hornet, a flight simulator was really big. Marathon, first-person shooter, of course, in that era, first-person shooters were taking over the world in the mid-90s. And Marathon was the Mac faithful's doom killer. Uh, They would say, who needs doom when you've got Marathon? Because they thought, (laughs) we got the better thing. Uh, And then when Quake and stuff came out, lots of people were playing that. Of course, uh, it's not like people were uh, that uppity about it. They would play ports uh, just as readily as they they played uh, native stuff. Well, the Mac was one of the first systems to have a CD-ROM drive as standard as well. You know, when mm. we got into the early 90s era. Did many games take advantage of that then when CD-ROM emerged? Yeah, some did. Uh, and we 
mentioned Mist before, and and that uh, owed a lot to the CD-ROM. But uh, uh, and there was also um, the Journeyman project was a very cool um, game in the in the Mist style. But before any of this, um, and before there was even a CD-ROM drive built into the Mac back at the time when you'd have to get an external drive that costs like a thousand dollars or something. There were these two guys uh, from opposite opposite sides of America who decided they would collaborate on a CD-ROM game. So one's in one's in Chicago and the other one is in um, San Francisco or San Diego or something somewhere in that Bay Area. And they decide, let's do this cool multimedia thing, 3D rendered adventure. Uh, it's going to be like an interactive movie. It's going to be so cool. Uh, the game is Spaceship Warlock, if anyone knows that. And uh, it's got this crazy development story where the two guys have to ship a hard drive back and forth across America because it's 1990 when they're developing it, or, or 1991, uh, sorry. Uh, and you don't have broadband internet. You can't just burn a CD and, and send it across because CD burners cost tens of thousands of dollars still. You can't easily get these fi- get the files that you're working on to the other person on the other side of the country. They're thousands of miles apart. So they get this external drive. It's 120 megabytes. That's megabytes. Yeah. <laughs> We've got these multi-gigabyte, multi-terabyte things we talk about now but this was just 120 megabytes and it was huge you wouldn't get a word doc into that now (laughs) (laughs) and they this is where they put the the only complete copy of the game they've got backups on some floppy disks uh, of individual files but they put the entire game on this one hard drive that gets couriered back and forth across the country so that they can each be working on their part of the game. One is doing the graphics and the design while the other one's doing the programming. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. Somehow the hard drive survives this whole process and they, they then ship off this one copy to the, the CD plant to, to get it mastered. And, and they did this whole thing in like nine months, which was phenomenal. The game came out, Spaceship Warlock, was like retailing for a hundred bucks, which was pretty expensive, and it sold very well. They got millions of dollars in revenue. It was a massive hit in Japan, and a bunch of people bought CD-ROM drives just so that they could get this game. Just in the same way as Mist um, and the Seventh Guest drove uptake of computers that had built-in CD-ROM drives a couple of years later. Well, Apple kind of changed architecture so much like you're talking about um when they went onto power pc as well and and they've just changed onto arm as well um how important were these kind of emulation or like bridging services uh, that they have they've currently got a uh, rosetta 2 at the moment but uh, there were previous versions for all all the different generations well, they're really critical because game developers or game publishers were heavily reliant on their back catalogs, keeping them afloat. The new games, uh, that first six to 12 months was, as it is on every other platform, really critical. But uh, particularly the small companies, and and keep in mind that the big companies are probably small companies by the standards of uh, console publishers and PC publishers of the day. But the smaller ones are 
completely reliant on their back catalogs to stay afloat. The, the bulk of the audience is on the, is on the older architecture, put it this way, and you want to target a larger, as large an audience as you can when you're making a game. So very often the developers would need to make the game compatible with the older system. It was then a lot easier for them, thanks to these emulation technologies, to have games work on both the new architecture and the old architecture. But then also keep in mind that it wasn't just architecture changes. So it wasn't just these processes that were changing. Uh, it's also there was a major operating system overhaul uh, right around the time my book uh, ends its story. The, oh, the classic era. So OS 9 was the last system of the classic era. And then into yeah. OS 10 or OS X, as some people call it. Uh, which was the sort of modern era. Um, now we've dropped the X and it's just Mac OS. And Apple breaks things every two years, uh, which drives developers insane because suddenly they've got this thing that's only two or three years old and it doesn't work on the latest system. But that transition as well was a huge thing because they had this whole new technology that they had to build. They called it Carbon. And then after Carbon, they had something called Cocoa. And then they have built all these other new things since then. Uh, more recently, there was something called Metal and Vulcan, and they come up with these crazy names. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right, though, because when OS X first came out, you had obviously Classic Mode was in there as well. Mm. But before that, I mean, I've, I've still got a, a Power Mac G4 set up with OS 9 on there, and that can play, obviously, most of the PowerPC stuff and even, like, the 68K stuff as well. So, mm. you know, back then you could go quite far back. Uh, with and it, it runs in full speed as well. There's not like, um, you know, there's not usually, like, a slowdown with them. They're, they're, they're really well done. Yeah, it's, it's superbly done. And part of that is uh, down to just how much of a step forward the PowerPC was over the 68K era, which taps into uh, part of how the, the Amiga and the Atari ST struggled to, to stay relevant. They, they weren't able to make that transition fast enough to the latest processes, and they were left behind as things transitioned to 3D, whereas Apple had, Apple had invested heavily in co-funding this power pc technology and that helped them in the mid 90s transition to 3d and stay relevant but the power pc was a huge advancement technologically and even those very first power pc max ran the 68k stuff really surprisingly well there was barely anything that had a noticeable slowdown which i thought was phenomenal and it's been much the same in the years since when they've done uh, other transitions well, what would you regard as the golden age of Mac gaming? To give it a broad stroke, I'd say the classic era. I think that's because that's when you had, across that whole era, across that uh, 17 years or so, you had a distinct Mac games flavor. That there, there were companies that were entirely focused on making games for the Mac, and that largely vanished as we got into the OS X era. And if you wanted me to, to go a bit narrower than just that whole classic era, uh, I'd say the mid to late 80s, like about 86 to 88, was a, a really thriving, exciting time uh, because the commercial developers from you know, the big companies like EA and stuff were an accolade. They were trying things on the Mac, testing out the waters, see see if the audience picks things up. And you had all the people who had uh, been inspired by the Macintosh itself making their 
phenomenal early games like the the icon simulations guys were doing the mac venture games uh silicon beach software were doing dark castle crystal quest you know the that first golden era of shareware mac games you had a cool thing called the colony from david allen smith uh, which was a, a sort of a first person shooter with a really deep storyline and uh, some quite remarkable technology given it was the 1980s well if somebody wanted to get into retro mac gaming what's the kind of good place that you point them to and say uh, this title's likely to impress you i think if you're if you're open to a bit of aimless whimsy the the manhole is a really cool thing to get into uh, it's not much of a gamey game but it's super cool as for more gamey type stuff uh, marathon is pretty cool if you play it with the the Aleph One tech, then you'll get a much more modern experience. If you try and play the the old the original Mac version through emulation, you might you might find it a bit uh, harder to to enjoy. Uh, Escape Velocity from Ambrosia is really cool. Dark Castle and the Colony are great, but they're kind of clumsy uh, if you weren't playing games of that sort in that era on other platforms then i don't know how you're going to go with it it's sort of all touch and go depending on your on on your experience your expectations i personally am a huge fan of a game called glider pro which was a commercial version of glider released in the mid 90s that had huge huge number of fan-made houses for you to explore and and not everything is actually a house a lot of houses are much more uh out of this world you had space stations the titanic was one you you could go outside inside and we're talking about hundreds of rooms interconnected with each other there's houses that will play themselves it's really cool deep game and i think often back then there'd be you know some games i played on different platforms that are actually you know looking back superior on the mac i remember the mac version of prince of persia was you know much enhanced over the dos version yeah that that was a phenomenally good port uh, i had that mm. uh, as a kid as well and uh, i was playing it in black and white but it was just brilliant and i was i was almost shocked when i saw what most other people had played for prince of persia I was, how, how did you guys cope with this it's so much worse well, let's get on to your new book then, um, The Secret History of Mac Gaming, available now with our Bitmap book. So, you know, a little disclaimer, they are our, the sponsor of our podcast, but we want to get you one because it's such a fascinating topic and the book looks incredible as well. Um, so what's kind of the aim of the book then and where did the idea come from? The aim of the book is very much just to let the world know that there were actually all these really cool, innovative um forward-thinking games on the Mac, and the Mac was always a games platform. It just was never given the credit that it deserved. And a lot of ideas that turned out to be really influential, like stuff that came out of SimCity, for instance, the the whole interface of how SimCity works, was inspired by the Mac. The Mac inspired a lot of people to think up better ways to design games and to play games. Um, better ways for games to work and then on a more personal note it's um it's a way for me to to get the stories behind all the games that i that i loved as a kid i i was i was playing games on on consoles as well super nintendo and playstation but the mac was a huge part 
of my youth. And I got to learn all the amazing stories behind the games that I had loved. Some of these stories are really cool and some of them are very unexpected. And some of the influences are just what I'd expect in completely different ways to how I expect it. And I know that's a bit of a cryptic statement, but if you look at the game Escape Velocity, it, it looks like Elite in 2D. And it was inspired by Elite, but Matt Birch, who made it, had never played Elite when he created Escape Velocity. He had oh, wow. owned a copy of Elite. He bought it from the store. He was on his bike riding home, and the copy protection device fell out of his bag or something. And this elaborate oh, prism <laughs> thing that you needed to, to decode uh, the, the copy protection uh, key. And... He got home and he was devastated. He went back to the shop and they wouldn't let him give it back because it was missing part of the game. And so he just read the manual over and over and over and over. <laughs> and then years later, he made a game in large part based on his imaginings of what Elite oh, must wow. have been. That's crazy. <laughs> well, who, who are you spoken to for the book then? I did around about 80 interviews. Uh, so... I talked to, to Matt Birch, who I just mentioned, and John Calhoun, and a bunch of other people who made cool shareware stuff. I talked to a couple of the guys from Bungie. I talked to basically everyone from Silicon Beach Software about their games, the Dark Castle and stuff. Uh, I talked to David Allen Smith about The Colony, Cyan Founders, Robin and Rand Miller. They were both very generous with their time. Yeah, I talked to a whole lot of people, uh, some, some people who were doing ports in the 90s, uh, some interesting stories there. There were a couple of people who basically were the uh, the legends of the porting scene. They, every major game, they would have a hand in doing the Mac version. So I got to talk to them about uh, all their cool stories and about uh, this one lady, Glenda Adams, who was able to get Mac-only Easter eggs into Tomb Raider 2 and Duke Nukem 3D. Uh, with Apple's permission, they were both... Uh, using Mac stuff. Uh, so Duke Nukem 3D, they played the nine, she got it to play the 1984 ad on the theater screen in the first level of Duke Nukem 3D. Uh, so on the DOS version, uh, I don't know if you guys remember, it's just like a, a lady in her underwear dancing. So, yeah, yeah. A <clears throat> memory of my youth, that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on the, on the Mac, if you, if you enter this code, I think it's DN1984 or something like that. Uh, you unlock this ad to play instead. So it'll play the original 1984 Macintosh ad that was played at the Super Bowl. Uh, this the oh, wow. really famous ad with the lady running down the corridor and she throws a hammer at the screen and it says, uh, uh, let's make sure that my 1984 is not like 1984, the book, something along those lines. Yeah. And in Tomb Raider 2, there's a cut scene where Lara is on her laptop and uh, she's doing some cool satellite stuff. And in Tomb Raider 2, it is a power book instead of some random PC. Well, your book um, is available now, this special expanded edition, um, 480 pages from uh, bitmapbooks.co.uk. If you ever thought the Mac wasn't a gaming platform, check out Richard's book. It's just incredible. Really opens your eyes to just how much was going on on that platform. I think particularly as well for people like, you know, over here in the UK and Europe who maybe didn't grow up with the Mac back in the 80s and 90s. I think it's mm. uh, definitely an eye-opening read. Have you got any plans to do uh, any future books then or uh, any other platforms you want to cover? Yeah, I've got lots of plans for future books. Um, 
I do intend to do more on Mac gaming stuff. I, I want to do a volume two. I've done a bunch of interviews for it, but it'll be probably two, three years out before I'm, I'm ready to put that out. I have another book coming out next year from uh, Unbound called Shareware Heroes, Independent Games at the Dawn of the Internet. And it is looking at that uh, whole shareware scene in the 80s and the 90s from nice. a, a broad perspective. So I'm, it's obviously sort of DOS-focused because that's where the bulk of the shareware stuff was happening. But I've tried to be reasonably platform agnostic in it. So I've got some Mac shareware stuff covered in it, so, uh, a few really cool Atari ST shareware things. Like, uh, I don't know if you guys have, have ever heard of the Grandad games. They're really cool adventure games. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, I was watching that on YouTube actually not long ago. They're hilarious. Yeah, I, I, that was such a, an exciting discovery for me. I never knew about it until I was researching the book. Uh, they're just so funny. And I, I managed to track down the developer, uh, Ian Scott. He, he went on to be a plumber after making the game uh, and got to talk to him about the stories behind it. And so I've got uh, Jeff Minter's really influential shareware game covered in there as well, a bit of Amiga stuff. So I tried to not just be totally DOS focused. I wanted to look at the shareware scene more holistically. That sounds amazing. We'll have to get you back on, Richard, when the when the book's ready. Yeah, That'll I, be a really interesting chat. Yeah, I'd love to to come along again. Well, I'll link up, of course, your current book in in our show notes this week as well, and your podcast. You know, people, if you love our show, you've got to check out Richard's podcast as well. Um, and it's been really interesting chatting about Matt Gaming, not really a topic that we've covered much on this podcast. So uh, we really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing some of your stories, and best of luck with the book. Thanks. This has been good.